Coming to you from the Barrier Island Center on Virginia's eastern shore, this is Sharing the Mic with David Phillips. In each episode, we try to give you a different perspective of life on the eastern shore, whether it's about an occupation or simply stories of what people who have lived here have done in their careers. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends. Sharing the Mic is a monthly podcast with each new episode appearing the first of each month. My guest today is Sally Dickinson, Executive Director of the Barrier Islands Center. It's been about a year since we last spoke, and I thought it would be a good idea to circle around and get her perspective on what her first year as Executive Director was like. Sally Dickinson, welcome back to Sharing the Mic. It's been about a year. It has. Thank you, David. Thank you for inviting me back. It's certainly good to have you. So you've been in this job for about a year, and I'm just wondering, with regard to your initial expectations of the job and what you had in mind, what things kind of have borne out to be as you expected them to be, and what are the surprises you may have had? Well, I think with the looking back at this first year, it also coincided really with the opening back up of, of the world, really, now that with the vaccines and also... That was nice to see the the Bear Island Center come back to really where we were from an activity level before the pandemic started. So so that's been nice to see. And I think in terms of what has been different with my role, I would probably say it's been interesting to take over the role as in terms of being in charge of the facilities and that responsibility of making sure that everything on the three historic buildings and the property is is working nicely and properly. And, and there's a certain amount of responsibility, I feel, knowing that that we house all these beautiful artifacts. And so that's been kind of a, a fun, interesting learning curve um, in terms of being the executive director of knowing that you're, you really are responsible for it all. The whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, we endured the pandemic and uh, we're coming out of that. Were there any lessons learned that can be applied going forward as it relates to the mission and the purpose of the BIC from that pandemic experience? I think one lesson that I learned that it really drove home is that putting your feet on the campus to have an educational learning experience is important and wonderful. There are there's so many other ways to reach people and reach a wider audience. And so it really sort of forced our hand to think in more innovative ways. The podcast series that started really out of that, or at least got it rolling, the conversations in the kitchen virtual lecture series. And we had been doing the documentaries all along. But again, all these different areas are able to be seen virtually. And so people can tune in, you know, all across the country or all across the state and be educated in that way. Have you been able to track people who have been exposed through the digital experience? Mm-hmm. We do. We we are able to track. For example, with the documentaries, we started to put them on YouTube and, and one a month people could watch virtually. And I would say since in the last year or so, over 10,000 people have watched those documentaries, you know, all over. 
And probably world. And probably the world, right. Because I noticed the metrics on this podcast, and we've had listeners from Frankfurt, Germany, and Australia, and who knows where else. Neat, yes. Mm -hmm. One rather significant change during this past year has been moving the time of the annual oyster roast from an early evening time to mid-afternoon. And I'm wondering if, if that was a successful uh, change for you. Yes. Yeah, so it, as you said, it used to be more of a four to eight party and we've moved it now to, to one o'clock. And I think we will definitely keep it at that time. You know, I think traditionally they said the oyster roast used to be done in the afternoon, like old timey oyster mm -hmm. roast. And from our campus and from a safety standpoint and all, it's just, it's just a nicer time that there was still daylight when people are going back to their cars. And so the feedback has been 100%. People have said, we love the time, keep it at that, at that time. So I think we will, yeah. especially we have so many friends that are coming from over in Hampton Roads area, and that gives them time to get home and, and all while it's there's still some light out. I know that uh, in the last month, there's been a, a soft premiere of the new film. Speak a little bit about that, and then I'm just wondering if you and Jim Spiona have discussed the possible next thing. We just premiered the seventh film, working with Jim Spione, and it's called Island Empire, The Story of the Cobbs. So like the first one that we did, Our Island Home, which just focused on Hog Island, this also, it just focuses on Cobb Island, so one island specifically. And it's really a fascinating story. I mean, it has everything of a, you know, a story that could be on a movie that could be on Netflix. You know, you have this man who has a sick wife up in Massachusetts who wants to bring his family down to where they could hopefully get healthy. And so he packs everybody up and, and moves down here. And he, Nathan Cobb has a, this is in the 1830s, 1836. Mm -hmm. And he obviously has a very strong entrepreneurial spirit. He must have been a very good businessman. He, um, so he saw this opportunity of this sandbar, basically, uh, which was Ship Shoal Island, later to be called Cobb Island. And like any entrepreneur saw something that maybe others didn't and thought he could turn this into a business opportunity. Right. Um, Let me stop you right there. Mm -hmm. I just want to let people know the reason that he came down was the illness, and the illness was tuberculosis, right? That's right. That's right. His his wife was suffering from it, as was his girls. That's another part of the story that's interesting. As I as we did more research and I learned more, for a long time I just thought Nathan Cobb had three sons because that's what you would hear about and and all. But he actually had four daughters, and of course his his wife, and they all died of eventually of tuberculosis, which is, is also sort of a, it just drives the point home about how, what people had to deal with back in the day before modern medicine and all. I mean, the tragedy of losing four members of your immediate family and, and how you persevere, how you regroup, move on through hardships like that. It just, I have a ton of admiration for not only his bravery and business smarts, but also his compassion and trying to help his wife and daughters and then unfortunately losing them. Right. It, it, it's interesting that none of the sons were affected. It is, yes. I mean, what's that about? Right. Yeah, I don't know. 
So he bought the island and he established basically what we would think of today as a resort where the wealthy from the north and maybe the south also came to hunt and fish and eat wonderfully, I understand. I, I fortunately had some background because I had interviewed Dr. Lloyd Newberry, who wrote a book on which the film is basically based. That's right. That's right. I know. You think at, at, at its height, it could accommodate 220 guests out on that island. And um, it was a real operation they were running. When is it going to be released for the general public? It's not yet out, is it? Not, it's not yet out. And what we're doing a little bit differently, we've always had them available for purchase with DVDs, but now that a lot of people don't have DVD, DVD players anymore. Right. So we're gonna we're gonna tweak it a little bit and 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 perhaps people can purchase to the to be able to download it through our museum gift sh online gift shop. So if instead of buying the DVD, they would just basically buy the downloadable link. Of course, you can always see it for free at the museum. Hear that, folks? You need to visit the Barrier Island Center in Machipango, Virginia. Okay, what about going forward? Do you have any idea of what a topic might be for the next film? We're starting to, like we always do, we start batting around some ideas and thinking about different areas that we would like to delve into more deeply. One thing is, you know, we have, Jim was wondering about the Native American experience here and the Native American history. That would be one possibility. Also with African American history here on the shore. And another thing we were talking about too is the history of agriculture and delving into what farming looked like, you know, back here a hundred years ago. What does it look like today? How has it changed? So I think that would be interesting as well. Sure. You've already kind of touched on aquaculture with the film Waterman, so. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The next one could be called Farmers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about some of the events that are coming up, say, June, July, and August. We have some summer camps for children. We have, that's probably, I would say, from April to October is, is our biggest, is our largest time for museum visitors. So, you know, everyone is on vacation, so the Bear Island Center is a nice place to, to stop. And then we'll just have these wonderful classes that are scheduled for adults and tweens also through the summer. So the best way to find out is in our newsletter or on our website, barrierislandcenter.org. And that has an up-to-date class list and, and upcoming events. One thing, too, that we're bringing back later in the fall it's called Meet the Carvers, and we haven't done that for several years, but we're really excited to bring that event back. And we have 12 to 13 local carvers who bring exhibition and part sale of decoys and, and carvings, and it's a nice time to, to go up to the carver and have a chance to talk to them. Some are carving, so you can see their process, and just a nice chance to, to chat with, with some of local people who are carrying on this carving tradition that runs so deep here on the Eastern Shore. Right. Do you have a project or projects that you haven't yet tackled that you're just kind of itching to do? Well, one area that we're excited to explore further and expand is gearing educational opportunities for the middle grades, like the upper elementary um, middle school grades. When we look at what we're doing and and what where we can 
improve or who else we can touch. That's one area that we all say that it would be great to invest some um, some time and resources into those children. You know, I was thinking ages 10 to 14 yeah. because we do such a, we do a wonderful job with the pre-K kindergartners. We're starting to do a lot more with high school and college age students. We're going to start some more initiatives to, to hit that kind of grades four through seven. Right. And that's kind of a difficult age for kids sometimes. It's a, it's, it's a wonderful age. I used to teach fourth grade, and so I, I have a soft spot in my heart for those that age. And, and kids at that age are really getting it, you know. They, mm-hmm. they, I, think it's a, I think it's a wonderful age. Every time I visit the Barrier Islands Center, I just marvel at how much better each time the campus looks. You've got new signage, new wall treatments. What else is going to happen? Thank you. Yes. So that's that's another thing that the that we always try to work on the Barrel and Center. One is to make it, you know, a tidy campus so it looks nice for visitors and for our local school children that that come up that brick walkway. The other thing that we work on is to always be tweaking and changing the exhibits a little bit. And I really have to give credit to Miriam Riggs, who does a lot of our museum exhibit design. So if we get some artifacts from the islands that come in and we bring Miriam in and she is able to interpret them and exhibit them in such a way that it's really meaningful for visitors. I mean, that's a couple of the best things that that you can say to me is that, gosh, things look really nice around here. And second is when someone says, oh my gosh, you've done so much. Like you, I love that these new exhibits are so, so constantly changing, tweaking, improving, um, just all that forward momentum. That's what the Barrel and Center is all about, I think. For folks who might want to get involved, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably our two events, the Oyster Roast and Art and Music on the Farm, which is always the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. It takes a lot of hands into pulling those events off, so that's a great way to to get involved. So how would one do that? Just reach out to to one of us, uh, Kristen, Megan, Tracy, or myself, and and we will happily, you know, help get you on the schedule to help. And I almost forgot to mention, you've also got new staff here. Talk a little bit about those people. Tracy Jones took over my job as the, she's the new director of education. And Tracy had has been with us for six years or so and really an integral part of the My First Field Trip program and has led the summer camps for all those years. So although so Tracy is new in, as the role of Director of Education, but she's certainly not new in terms of the wonderful programming that, that she offers here. Right. And then Megan Ames is the Director of Development and Planning. So she is she does the fundraising and helps, you know, where the Bear Island Center's going and, ha- and help us get there. So we are really fortunate to have all of them on the team. I mean, just really top shelf quality people with very smart, great values, really creative. So I couldn't be more pleased to have them. 
You had mentioned in our last conversation about a year ago that you would like to expand the My First Field Trip program to include more grades. I believe you'd gotten to the as far as the fourth grade when we talked about it. Have you added say fifth or sixth grade yet? Th that is that's on our that's on our plan. Um, we have had more opportunities for second and third graders, and and as you mentioned, we're starting to add um, more fourth graders. And again, the, as the schools are opening up, the the children are able to come back for the my first field trip experiences, you know, more certainly since January than even last fall. So I feel very optimistic that next year we will, you know, we'll be back. About how many kids are served in this program, say, on an annual basis? For the for this program, about 220 to 270 students um, are served with just that program. And as we like to say, it's just not a one-touch visit. So those children come back four times during that year, which makes this program a little different and a little special is that you're able to do so much more with four visits than just one visit. Right. And again, that familiarity that this, the child knows with the history and having these wonderful opportunities. And I don't know, I always think where I came from, I really never had local history lessons. I didn't know anything about where I lived in Cleveland, any of the history. So I think it's important to to know what's happened before you. It just get, it gives you a better sense of who you are and where you live. And so I think it's... it's Okay. And finally, does the BIC have any needs that you'd like people to know about. I think introductions and and bringing visitors here that that's a that would be that'd be wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, David. Several years ago, Hampton Roads Public Media, WHRO, did a series of short spots called Our Eastern Shore. On each of our podcasts, I will revisit one episode. Listen. The coming of the railroad You're listening to Our Eastern Shore. The actual laying of railroad track on the Eastern Shore did not begin until the 1880s. They ran from Maryland down the peninsula to a new town named Cape Charles City. From the harbor there, passengers would board steamers to cross the Chesapeake Bay. New towns grew up around the railroad depots, and passengers were excited about the luxurious cars with dining and sleeping facilities. For local people, traveling to new cities and resorts became much easier. At first, there was but a single track, but at the turn of the century, a parallel track was laid, and locomotives moved up and down the peninsula at an impressive speed. By the 1950s, the elegant steam locomotives were being replaced by the less elegant but more powerful diesels. Sadly, the trains could not compete with motor vehicles in 20th century America. Yet there are still those who miss the mournful whistle of a night train on the Eastern Shore tracks. Our Eastern Shore is created by WHRO in partnership with the Barrier Islands Center. Funding has been provided by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. You have been listening to Sharing the Mic with David Phillips, produced by the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's Eastern Shore. Sally Dickinson, Executive Director. Kristen Dennis, Office and Marketing Manager. Megan Ames, Director of Planning and Development. Tracy Jones, Director of Education. 
The Barrier Island Center is located at 7295 Young Street in Machipongo, Virginia, 23405. The website is www.barrierislandscenter.org. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please direct them to bicpodcast at icloud.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and be well.